0: Five dollars is in due, but it is. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Rain, well, don't even worry, don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayaks. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse or.
1: Day. It is September 21st, 2016. You are listening to the AltaCast here on radio.fm I am your host, Pam Benjamin, here to bring you all kinds of great news from the front lines. Drug policy, from the Drug Policy Alliance. Good friend and uh, lady on the inside. Drug Policy Alliance. Melissa Moore has sent me the news about what is happening this week in drug policy uh, reform. Also today, Stephen Allen Green, comedian from LA, excited that he's here. Latoya, the Sheriff of Truth, co-host and all-around awesome lady, she's going to be here soon. Talking today about drug policy. Always well, we started out that way, folks. We're going to be doing that from now on, thanks to the Drug Policy Alliance. Please like them on Facebook. Check them out at drugpolicy.org. Also talking about brilliant Savarin, 1925. Wonderful philosopher, uh, specifically dealing with food. Little stuff on obesity today. Exciting what the people in 1825 thought about obesity in France. Those rich people eating truffles every day, every day. Right? Am I right? (laughs) Oysters and truffles every day. All right. Well, let's get started right here. (coughs) This weekend, drugs. (laughs) Jay Z says the war on drugs is an epic fail. Uh, Sean J.Z. Carter and artist Molly Crabapple teamed up for a short film. Uh, It's part history lesson about the war on drugs and part vision statement. As Miss Crabapple's haunting images flash by, the film takes us from the Nixon administration and the Rockefeller drug laws, the draconian 1973 statutes enacted in New York that exploded the state's prison population and ushered in a period of similar sentencing schemes for other states. Through the extraordinary growth of our nation's prison population, the emerging above-ground marijuana market today, we learn our African Americans can make up around 13% of the United States population, yet 31% of those arrested for drug violations, even though they use and sell drugs at the same rate as white. The project came about... When last year, Dream Hampton, the filmmaker and co-author of Jay-Z's book Decoded, approached the Drug Policy Alliance about collaborating with Revolve Impact, a social impact agency she, uh, she works with. Revolve Impact connects artists and influencers to community organizers, and with marijuana legalization taking hold across the nation, and about to be considered in her own state, California, Miss Hampton wanted to tackle the new the Contradiction, raised by Michelle Alexander, the author of The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness in 2014. Why were white men poised to get rich doing the very same thing that African-American boys and men had long been going to prison for? Miss Hampton proposed creating an animated video that the DPA would produce about the impact of the war on drugs in African-American communities. Let's listen to this. This is uh, Jay-Z and Molly Crabapple, Jim Bat and Kim Boakbinder and Dream Hampton uh, here with the war on drugs is an epic fail. This is also New York Times. History of the war on drugs from Prohibition to Gold Rush. In
2: 1986, when I was coming of age, Ronald Reagan doubled down on the war on drugs that had been started by Richard Nixon in 1971. Drugs were bad, fried your brain. And drug dealers were monsters. The sole reason neighborhoods and major cities were failing. No one wanted to talk about Reaganomics and the ending of social safety nets. The defunding of schools and the loss of jobs in cities across America. Young men like me who hustle became the sole villain and drug addicts lacked moral fortitude. And in the 1990s, incarceration rates in the US blew up. Today we imprison more people than any other country in the world. China, Russia, Iran, Cuba. All countries we consider autocratic and repressive. Yeah, more than them. Judges' hands were tied by tough-on-crime laws, and they were forced to hand out mandatory life sentences for simple possession and low-level drug sales. My home state of New York started this with Rockefeller laws. Then the feds made distinctions between people who sold powder cocaine and crack cocaine even though they were the same drug. Only difference is how you take it. And even though white people used and sold crack more than black people, somehow it was black people who went to prison. The media ignored actual data to this day. Crack is still talked about as a black problem. The NYPD raided our Brooklyn neighborhoods while Manhattan bankers openly used coke with impunity. The war on drugs exploded the US prison population disproportionately locking away black and Latinos. Our prison population grew more than 900%. When the war on drugs began in 1971, our prison population was 200,000. Today it is over 2 million. Long after the crack era ended, we continued our war on drugs. There were more than 1.5 million drug arrests in 2014. More than 80% were for possession only. Almost half were for marijuana. People are finally talking about treating addiction to harder drugs as a health crisis but there's no compassionate language about drug dealers. Unless, of course, we're talking about places like Colorado, whose state economy got a huge boost by the above-ground marijuana industry. A few states south in Louisiana are still handing out mandatory sentences for people who sell weed. Despite a booming and celebrated 50 billion legal marijuana industry, most states still disproportionately hand out mandatory sentences to black and Latinos with drug cases. If you're entrepreneurial and live in one of the many states that are passing legalized laws, you may still face barriers participating in the above ground economy. Venture capitalists migrate to these states to open multi billion dollar operations, but former felons can't open a dispensary. Lots of times, those felonies were drug charges, caught by poor people who sold drugs for a living, but are now prohibited from participating in one of the fastest growing economies. Got it? In states like New York, where holding marijuana is no longer grounds for arrest, police issue possession citations in black and Latino neighborhoods at a far higher rate than other neighborhoods. Kids in Crown Heights are constantly stopped and ticketed for trees. Kids at dorms in Columbia, where rates of marijuana use are equal to or worse than those in the hood, are never targeted or ticketed. Rates of drug use are as high as they were when Nixon declared this so-called war in 1971. 45 years later, It's time to rethink our policies and laws. The War on Drugs is an epic fail.
1: All right, everybody. The War on Drugs is an epic fail. It's what we've been saying here uh, on this show, the same information we've been talking about for weeks. But the thing is, if it comes from Jay-Z, now, now everybody listening.
3: Because he used to sell crack.
1: Because he used to, well, he knows, and he's super famous. But, uh, And that's a funny thing. Uh, But he worked with the Drug Policy Alliance on that great video that went viral today. And it's the same thing that the Drug Policy Alliance has been saying. And you can check them out at uh, drugpolicyalliance.org. So let me get back to the rest of this. Hey, welcome, LaToria, the Sheriff of Truth. When she made it, you look great. The cute new dress. Loving it.
3: Hello, everybody. Hello, Miss Pam. All right.
1: Uh, so that we listened to Jay-Z telling us uh, all these things. The project came about when last year Dream Hampton, the filmmaker and co-author of Jay-Z's book Decoded, approached the Drug Policy Alliance about collaborating with Revolve Impact, the social impact agency she works with. Revolve Impact connects artists and influencers to community organizers and with marijuana legalization taking hold across the nation and about to be considered in her own state, California. Ms. Hampton wanted to tackle the contradiction raised by Michelle Alexander, the author of The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness in 2014. Why were white men poised to get rich doing the same thing that African-American boys and men had long been going to prison for? Ms. Hampton proposed creating an animated video that the DPA would produce about the impact of the drug war in African-American communities. Policymakers are joining advocates in demanding an end to biased policing and mass incarceration. And in November, Californians specifically have the opportunity to vote yes on Prop 64. I messed up. I was calling it 46, but it's 64. That's because I'm dyslexic. The most (laughs) racial justice oriented marijuana legalization measure ever. Prop 64 would reduce and in many cases eliminate criminal penalties for marijuana offenses. And it's retroactive. People sitting in prison for low-level marijuana offenses would be released and have their records expunged. In addition, Prop 64 would drive millions of dollars in direct funding and investments to those communities most harmed by the criminal justice system. Jay-Z and Molly Crabapple are inviting us all to stand on the right side of history. Uh, This was written by Asha uh, Bandeli, who is the senior director at the Drug Policy Alliance, and this is from uh, the New York Times. So, pretty cool that... The New York Times is picking up stories from our friends at the Drug Policy Alliance. Awesome. But this is this is the big news. No- this is the big news today is uh, that this the Jay Z's in and, and this is all going viral. And I get the hope is that everybody watches this video and yeah. learns uh, about biased law enforcement and what's been happening. And I thought it was very interesting in the video when they say, you know when they people who were given sentences for selling marijuana, now there's an opportunity to sell marijuana legally, but if you're a felon, you don't have the opportunity to open a business. So it's about expunging records at this point and saying, hey. Yeah,
3: I mean, it's, I mean, I think, the, I think now you know people starting to realize that you know the drug war has failed. Most, I mean, for those colors of color a community, we already knew about it, but mostly like mainstream white America are finally realizing that hey, you know, maybe this war has not gone well. Right but now, because now it's starting to affect a lot of white communities with the heroin epidemic that's going on. Right, you know, so I mean, I think it's a wake up. You know, unfortunately, you know, the heroin act epidemic is kind of
4: open their eyes to it But right, it's
1: the access to to the pills and well the thing yeah. is that addiction happens at, at equal rates for exactly. people we're it, human it's beings not, it's you know i it, mean i it, guess you could break it down by country maybe because some countries have like i don't know how much heroin addiction there is in say africa because who has the time the free time to devote to getting high. Do you know like you're yeah, trying to survive well, and shit? Well, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean I, I'm just curious to see what the proportions of drug addiction are worldwide. And, world, and if, yeah. if, if you can break it down by nation. Well, and, well, you know,
3: the Philippines, we talked about the Philippines oh, yeah. a couple of weeks ago, how uh, President Duente wants to shoot anyone, you know, yeah, basically, em. yeah, just kill them. If they're know. a drug addict. If they're it's a drug addict or selling drugs. yeah, you know. the easiest
1: way to take care of the problem. Just kill the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the video and critique of the drug war comes a few months after an unprecedented group of voices called to end the war on drugs. In April, on the eve of the 2016 United Nations General Assembly special sentence, which is un un-gas, <laughs> U-N-G-A-S-S, on the world's drug problem, world leaders and activists signed a letter to U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, urging him to set the stage for real reform, of global drug control policy. More than 1,000 people who signed the letter included Senators Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, and Bernie Sanders, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, businessman Warren Buffett, George Soros, Richard Branson, and Barry Diller, actors Michael Douglas and Woody Harrelson, Super Bowl champion Tom Brady. Uncle Tom Brady. Yeah, the singers John Legend and Mary J. Blige, activists Reverend Jesse Jackson, Gloria Steinem, and Michelle Alexander, as well as distinguished legislators, cabinet ministers, and former UN officials. So people are coming together and saying, stop it. Stop with this old drug po- policy. Uh, you know, It's time to change. It's time to have some drug policy change so that we can actually deal with the issues of harm reduction as opposed to um, the money machine and mass incarceration and, and that certain people are profiting off of
3: human bodies. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: But I mean, it's just human trafficking and, and lately on the bus I keep seeing all these human traff. Oh, you, have you seen her? Have you seen him? You know, they're being forced to work or the human trafficking. Man, we're being human trafficked right now. Absolutely. I mean, if you go, if, if you're taking more than three pharmaceutical pills a day, your your body is being sold to science right now. Yeah. You're being your 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 health and your well being are, are being mortgaged by pharmaceutical corporate America.
3: Which is it's, sad. It's sad. And the thing is it's just like, you know, these pharmaceutical companies are the ones that are very, very dangerous, you know, they're the scary ones, they're the drug pushers or what have you, that, you know, the so-called fear, you know, that uh, the Nixon administration, the Reagan administration, the Bush administration, one and two, have, you know, and even part of the Clinton administration, hate to say it, but yeah, you know, have pushed as this fear of like the drug pushers on the street when it's actually the pharmaceutical companies that are the, the biggest drug pushers yeah you know and you know and, and what
1: does it say to a society when we when we still i mean i think things might be changing a little bit grassroots especially with the netflix things and people are starting to watch but when you've been blindly taught as a society that when something's wrong, you take a pill to fix it.
3: Right, right. But, you know, the sad thing is you have a Republican Senate that is behind a lot of these pharmaceutical companies and what have you. And, you know, they have, uh, the Republicans have their own way of gerrymandering any kind of votes or what have you, and voter suppression. So, like, you know, we, you know, we have the grassroots to make the oh. change, but now... A lot of uh, legislators are cheating.
1: But the problem is that we want it. We want more pills. People love pills. Yeah. People love it. Fix it with a pill. I mean, th- that's the thing. If you Like the example last week with my friend who they said, you know, we can put you on this blood pressure medication or you can lose 40 pounds. They'll do the same thing. Now, Americans, we're lazy assholes. And we just want a pill to fix it. Just fix it. I'm in pain. Give me a pill to fix it. Well, maybe if, if you lost a little weight, you wouldn't be in so much pain because you wouldn't be putting so much, you know, stress on your joints and your bones and your muscles and these kinds of things. Maybe if you stopped smoking, you wouldn't, you know, it, but there's, a, there's a lot of things that people could do to positively affect their health that yeah. I don't think they choose to do because it's easier and, a and they don't, to take a pill. And the other thing is, that's when you see the doctor, and the doctor prescribes a pill, and you take it. Like, people don't check up after you later and say, there's no, like, holistic, all-around sort of health thing. Like, your doctor doesn't call you and go, hey, how did, how's it going with that weight loss? Or, like, actually being concerned about, they see you once, they try to the diagnose this, and, and they, get, they get you out of there. I,
3: you know, I... I also feel too that we as Americans, we work way too hard and that the problem is when we work too hard, and I am meaning at our jobs or careers, we don't have time to take care of ourselves, sure. which that amount of stress, the amount of lack of time, you know, affects us to where, you know, obesity, high blood pressure, stress, all the depression. See, I- and, and the thing is, you know, here in our, in our society, we don't we don't believe in a vacation too much. You know. If we have like a month vacation to just unplug everything and I think we've talked about See, this several I, times. I don't I don't
1: think Americans would do well with that because I think that Americans do have a lot of time but they waste their time in front of the TV or on their phone or like just dis all I think we have a lot of time. We just choose to spend it really poorly.
3: I, I, I kind of I disagree because I, you know, especially I see a lot of single mothers or what have you who do have to have two jobs in order to survive because their jobs aren't paying them well, so they don't have time to take care of themselves. That's why you have a lot of obesity and a lot of people of, you know, not upper class, but more of lower class and middle class because they don't have time to do so. To To cook. To cook, to to even go work out, to, you know See, but
1: th- that's the thing is that if we drove less cars and had more time on the bus, but you'd about, walk more between places
3: and on the bus you can read a book. But what about that's in urban areas, but sure. in okay, rural okay. in rural areas though. Right. You know, that See
1: and we're car and that's the problem is we're a car culture. And people still eat in their cars and they have meals in their cars, which is gross and it it really is but see and I forget that because I've lived in an urban area and taken the bus for nine years now that I used to be a part of a car culture and it was you get in your car and drive everywhere and funny enough when I lived in San Diego with that car culture I weighed five to seven pounds more than I do now and I really think it was just inactivity it's getting in a car instead of I mean, it's funny, like, even going to Costco when you have a car and you're like, oh, I don't want to park so far away. It's like, <laughs> yeah. walk across
3: the damn parking lot, fatso. Come on. You're going to get 12 muffins anyway. Go. Guilty of that. Walk, walk yeah. your ass across the parking lot. But, I mean, that does... It does make me a little bit irate to the fact, of the matter, that I do see, like, a lot of people who, you know, I that are lazy who do not use their time wisely. Right. You know, I think it's probably, like, very, very... I think it's 50 percent of how you know there's one demographic of people who can't afford to take time off because of their economic status and then there's one demographic that well i choose not to use that time wisely i rather you know shop online and do whatever and eat my bonbons and you know where i have this access where i don't have to leave my house right you know so i mean i do you know there's a bit, i think there's a balance of those demographics. I think
1: it's it's catch twenty-two in that people should watch less TV, but we can't watch less TV because that's what they want us to do, because that's where all the commercials are and they want us to buy things. It's like they don't want you to spend they want you to spend time out spending bye bye bye. But they also want you to spend time... I mean, they're finding new ways to advertise to us. I mean, it's all over the your movies, phone. the movies, goddammit. It's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like everywhere. you
3: can't escape it. And then, you know, you will... S- it's funny now, like, if you're watching a YouTube, the commercials that do come up are about some kind of pill or what have you or something mm-hmm. to, like, lure you in. Like- I saw one
1: for UCSD, which I thought was weird. I'm like, my old school has to be on a... Wow, that's weird. Uh, YouTube videos, though, I mean, I don't know. I just think we're... If everybody could just, I really think that Americans spend their time, no one reads anymore. We're stupid. Nobody reads. Everyone eats too much. Uh, Later today, we're going to talk about brilliant Savarin in 1825. He wrote these treatises on food, and he was a French philosopher who wrote specifically about food. He's a gourmand. Anyways, he has a whole thing on obesity. It's very funny how in 1825, at a time of opulence and excess in France, how it's very similar, some of his thought processes to what's happening today, but he's much more healthy, which is interesting, even though he was a a fat guy. Do
3: you you think also too, like some people take, like the, you know, things to the extreme on the other side, such as like those who want to be healthy. For example, like uh, people who say they're gluten free. Which they're not. You know,
1: I don't people? know about diet. I mean,
3: it, like these strict restrictions that are just so fucking ridiculous. Yeah, you know, to where it it doesn't it just affect you as an individual. That person that is, you know, I'm gluten free, but it affects everyone. You know, an eating you.
1: disorder is an eating disorder, and and I sometimes think that when people go too far with like gluten free or you know only quinoa or raw diets or paleo. Hey, man, uh, you could also be bulimic. You could also be anorexic. (laughs) There's all kinds of ways to have an eating disorder, but it basically means that the time... I mean, if it's a disorder, it means that the time that it takes and that you put into it is more than even... do Do you know what I mean? Like, if you're spending... Three hours before every meal, like researching the meal and spending the time of what are you going to do and what are you going to make? I mean, that's a little obsessive. And I think that can demarcate a sign of, of an eating disorder. That's
3: And that's kind of sort of like what I'm getting into because working in the restaurant business, especially where I work at in the marina, where the, there's these stupid dietary restrictions. But... They don't seem too healthy to me. Right. You know, they don't seem balanced. Right. Remember you know,
1: Atkins? <laughs> oh, God. See,
3: like, exactly. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's almost carbs kind of Carbs are like, the enemy. Yeah, carbs are the enemy. And then look what happened to that guy, David. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so it's just like, I, you know, people believe in what they hear and they see without researching. Like, I had so many people who had these weird dietary restrictions last night. And you know, I'm gluten free, but they didn't know on the menu what they could eat,
1: right? Right, right. What's gluten free here? Um, the eggplant parmesan well, no, that probably has uh, breadcrumbs, it has,
3: has breadcrumbs. So, that's that's what I'm talking about. Like, right. you know, and you know, I had a woman who was a vegetarian, gluten free, and I'm just like, how am I supposed to help you? I, right. just, you know, so I mean. Well, but if you have extreme
1: bullshit like that, don't go out to eat, you (laughs) fucking (laughs) asshole. (laughs) You know, seriously, if, oh, I can only have... Then you know what? Then don't go out. Then stay home. Then have a dinner party at your own house. (laughs) Don't come out and go to a a chef and... You know what? Then get a a chef to come cater your place and let him think about it all day. Don't come into a place that already has, like, a set menu and a pre-sfeeks or whatever and then say... Well, you know, but cherry tomatoes make me break out in hives,
3: then... (sighs) My thing is this, like, you know, if you are gluten intolerant, supposedly, because most people don't have celiac, know what you're eating, like, research that, do your homework. I'm not supposed to do it for you. Don't eat the bread on the table. No one
1: makes gluten-free bread at a restaurant. If
3: you're vegetarian and you're gluten-free, you can't eat a falafel. It's just yeah. someone you can't I
1: thought it was made with the garbanzo beans garbanzo flour,
3: yeah, but we make it from scratch and it depend you know what depends, depends what kind of ingredients that you have in it so my thing yeah. is this always do your homework and you know you
1: could make a gluten free falafel if you just used garbanzo right if you ground up garbanzo beans or used garbanzo flour but you, could, you could you could do it, but you don't know if but that's the thing is it who's making a fucking?
3: Ugh. Yeah, and but it, it just comes in full circle of, like, how obsessive our culture is with, like, taking a pill or these right. strict, retarded dietary restrictions. Whereas if you just do your homework of, like, you know, eating stuff that's natural, eating more vegetables, eating, you know, if you eat... Eat when, when
1: you're hungry. Stop when you're full. Don't you know, eat. Try not to eat things that are processed.
3: Right, you know. Like,
1: it's, it's kind of a no-brainer, but we act like it's, like, this big, huge, like... Oh, it's so hard. (laughs) Oh, I can't. It's so hard to do. It's like, you know what? It's not hard to lose weight. You just, it's calories in, calories out. Burn more calories than you take in. Try to eat foods that are healthy. What? I mean, you know, eat an apple. Don't eat... You know, anyway, it makes me crazy. Uh, We're going to finish up the drug policy minute. We're going to get back to this. Uh, New York State Supreme Court rules unanimously in favor of case affecting the thousands of new Mexicans who are at risk of being denied the right to vote. Uh The decision is an important benchmark in the restoration of voting rights of persons convicted of felonies. All right, this is our... Second, uh, the week, dr- this week in drugs, uh, thanks to Melissa Moore of Drug Policy Alliance. Thank you. Santa Fe. Today at 11 a.m., the New Mexico Supreme Court ruled unanimously in favor of, of a case that would have determined whether many thousands of New Mexicans will be uh, will be at risk of being denied the right to vote, one of the most fundamental and meaningful rights that Americans possess. This case, the League of Women Voters of New Mexico versus Advisory Committee to the New New Mexico Compilation Commission, presented the court with the issue that the Advisory Committee to the New Mexico Compilation Commission should not be placed in the position of deciding for itself how to reconcile sections of the New Mexico Constitution, nor determining what rights are being expanded or restricted, though it is unwittingly being placed in that position. Oof, that's difficult to understand what's happening. The Drug Policy Alliance's New Mexico office, which filed a friend-of-the-court brief in support of the League of Women Voters, favored eliminating improper and unnecessary hurdles to the recognition of voting rights and considers the case an important benchmark in the struggle to restore the voting rights of persons who have been convicted of felonies after those persons have served their sentences. Kate Fairlick argued on behalf of the Drug Policy Alliance on Wednesday. (laughs) Okay, I see. So, I guess what it's talking about is that once you've been a felon, you can never vote again. And what they're saying is, wait, 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 let's stop that kind of stuff, especially... If it's a drug case that has then been overturned, that's the stuff they're dealing with Prop 64 in here and they, in That's why they California. lock up black
3: and brown people, to stop them from voting. To stop
1: them from voting. That's an interesting side bar besides the money issues, yes. The New Mexico State Constitution is notable for its long history of protecting the rights of voters generally and minority voters in particular. The League of Women Voters case asked the court to honor both the Constitution and the intent of the state citizens who have amended the Constitution Constitution over the years to allow the electorate by simple majority vote to expand the voting rights of New Mexicans previously denied the vote for reasons of having uh, that have been long discredited. Emily Kaltenbach, Drug Policy Alliance, New Mexico director, states that not only is depriving a person who has served their sentence of the right to vote un-American, it is counterproductive There is clear evidence that exercising the right to vote is an important part of rehabilitation. Voting reduces criminal recidivism, enhances responsible citizenship, and builds a sense of belonging in the community. By contrast, being denied the vote, notes Kallenbach, is a form of civil death that has widespread and devastating consequences that hurts individuals, families, and entire communities. This brings up an excellent point because... The point of going to jail is to make you pay for your crime or whatever, right? Like right. In, in the theory, like in jail theory, right? The reason that we lock people up for certain offenses is to say, bad, 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 hey, like a time out, learn, time yeah, out. learn something, don't do it again. But if you do that, and when they come out, you say, up. Oh, well you're, now. You're, you're a
3: felon, can't get a job. Can't get a job, can't, can't, can't get uh,
1: a, a loan paper, can't get student loans, can't. You can't get a FAFSA anymore. No longer able to apply for federal student aid for higher education. So set
3: up by design. If
1: you fail. make one mistake and they put you away for the mistake and say, Hey, 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 bad, bad, bad. The theory behind it is that going to jail somehow rehabilitates you, so you'll never do it again. But then, if you remove all of the rights that the person has, There's no what problem. other options do you give them except to do it again? Do it again the create is- more crime right. to make
3: there is no rehabilitation right and because and especially with a lot of prisons taking out of a lot of programs and what have you ged programs college right, programs right. you know what what it what is it, what what is the punishment i mean what, what do you learn what, what do you learn? you learn right you know you learn that well shit i just want to get out and then how am i gonna i'm gonna have to hustle again now, in yeah. order to to survive
1: or to uh, what you've learned in jail is how to hustle better uh Let them, let every. yeah, don't, uh, uh, Emily Kaltenbach, Drug Policy Alliance's New Mexico director states that not only is depriving a person, oh, I already said that one, uh, by contrast being denied to vote, civil death, blah, 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 uh, form of civil death that has widespread and devastating consequences that hurts individuals, families, and entire communities. Absolutely true. As the Drug Policy Alliance's brief to the court explains, nationwide, nearly 6 million Americans, or 2.5 percent of the U.S. voting age population are denied the right to vote under state felony disenfranchisement Disenfranchisement laws. Across the country, such laws disproportionately affect minorities, meaning that persons of color are more likely to be silenced at the ballot box than their white counterparts. The failed war on drugs, which historically has targeted communities of color and poor people in the enforcement of drug laws, is a primary cause for the huge numbers of adult Americans who cannot vote, including many thousands of New Mexicans. The Drug Policy Alliance is urging the court to read the state constitution in a manner that honors the importance of the right to vote, recognizes the substantial harm caused when this right is withheld from citizens, and gives the electorate an ability to expand voting rights through a simple majority vote to New Mexicans who were wrongly deprived of this fundamental right. The Drug Policy Alliance is the nation's leading organization of people who believe that the war on drugs is going to do more harm than good dpa fights for drug policies based on science compassion health and human rights all right thanks melissa that is our drug policy uh this week in drugs do to do, do this week in drugs 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 drugs, 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 drugs 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 drugs
3: give me some drugs uh
1: that was so sean jay-z uh, everybody spread that around virally uh giving out some great information that's absolutely true that the dpa has been talking about for a long time and then also hey Let's save the vote out there in New Mexico, and hopefully here too. Um, Prop 64 is coming up. Please vote, vote. for that. And uh, I know it's scary. A lot of growers really don't like this law uh, because it's going to start putting regulations on how much water they can use, and um, hate legalizing everything that's been not legal for a long time. It's going to be, it's going to be rough, everybody. It's going to take a little time. But um, yeah, just think- jump on board, let's, let's make it legal and, uh, and eliminate the underground market so that we can just have it all above board and everybody can make some money here in California.
3: You know, it's just really scary that, you know, if you, once you cross straight straight uh, state lines elsewhere, you know, it's a whole different environment and story when it comes to like their marijuana laws. Like we could step into Arizona and have two J's and then end up in jail.
1: Well, well you know. they—I they, think that they've—they've they've done it medicinally there. Um, so if you have your card, you're—you're you're pretty fine in Arizona. But uh, yeah, yeah. Texas is still real scary, and uh, Louisiana, Louisiana is, is still a really scary Georgia. place. There's a lot of places that still have mandatory jail sentences for um, possession of marijuana, which is—I mean, things. I think that things are going to change, and I think they're going to change faster rather than slower. I mean, I'm nervous particularly because um, if our favorite if mr orange face
3: orange face.
1: if he gets elected Leather I'm le- I'm leaving the country you, you promise? know this right you promise well no this is the thing though it's gonna destroy I mean it's gonna be kind of a bummer I don't think that people I, I mean I don't want to be like no one can run the station without me but um <laughs> I mean I this is the thing is I'm supposed to put the station in my name that all the businesses licenses and everything are expiring soon. And so I would have, I mean, I'd have to put them in my name, but I'm not going to do it until after the election. And if Trump is elected, I'm fleeing the country, meaning that I'm just going to kind of tell everybody at the next meeting, I'm going to be like, hey, everybody, uh, just so you know.
3: You enjoy Armageddon here in the United States. Yeah, I'm getting at it. <laughs> I'm getting,
1: I mean, I'm saying it's a big deal. I mean, abandoning the station is kind of a big, huge deal. And it's a bummer, but... I can't live here in this nation with that kind of hypocrisy. I can't talk about how stupid people are in America. If he is truly elected, I cannot live here because you all have done this to me and I'm out. It's because good. I'm a socialist and I believe in freedom and I will not let a fascist run this country. Oh, it is too I'm close so to Hitler. He's a racist. He says terrible things. And he's an idiot. And he's a businessman. He's not even a real person. He's, he's like a an, actor. Man. He's a he's
3: man. an actor. He's a terrible businessman. He's an actor. I'm f- just
1: saying, if he is elected, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to those of you who are stalwart listeners of Mutiny Radio. If you are, if there's any of you out there. But I'm honestly leaving the country. And I'm not even saying this to be inflammatory. And I'm not saying this... I'm actually leaving.
3: I, you know, what's (laughs) scary is I was uh, reading Huffington Post and they were doing the polls in different states, how Trump is up in polls like in Florida and I think Ohio. And I'm just thinking how and why, how, I don't, I don't understand, but I think I also, again, I put a little blame on the media as well. You know, like, sugarcoating him as, like, some, like, funny kind of goofy guy with the hair do. Like, there's, um, did you read about the Jimmy Fallon, think, the interview that he gave uh, on Jimmy Fallon? Oh, yeah,
1: he touched his hair or whatever. Yeah, right? it was all
3: playful and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's just, like, human, making him, like, human like that when he's actually inhumane Right. is kind of inflammatory to what the American people, what, you know, what we're... Basically, it's full, it's, they're, it's full of shit. You know, NBC is trying to sell Donald Trump as some, like, nice guy. The concept that this who- is
1: still happening, that he is still the frontrunner for the Republican Party, is insane. He has no political qualifications whatsoever. That's- to have any... He's never held an office ever for anything. And he's still... I don't get it. It, is, it just says, all it means is that Amer- America is a place of money. If you have money, you can do anything. And it's true. And we all know this, which is why if he really is elected, I have to leave. Because I am against all of that. I am against. Money. I'm a socialist. I can't. It's not that I'm against money. I just I'm against, I'm against that somehow some people are better or they deserve more I'm money than other evil. people.
3: I'm just against evil. That dude's plain yeah. ass evil. He's, it's, he's, he's just. I mean, he's an evil son of a bitch. Yeah. And I can't believe these poor white folks out there who are voting for him who don't. I well, mean, I the just, way I just, that just, they're selling it is
1: that they're selling it that Hillary's a liar. And that's. I talked to my so dad is, on his birthday. So is so oh, I, is I know they're Trump. all. So that's is every politician, politician since the beginning of. Time, and but they're trying to, and people keep saying my parents. My dad's like, "You're gonna vote for that liar, Hillary Clinton."
3: Every really? politician
1: is a it, liar.
3: What about okay, every so dads single dads one of them? Trump.
1: I. That's what I said. I said, "So you're gonna vote for?" Well, what else? What? They say, "Well, what choice do I have? I can't vote for the liar." And it's like, Listen. you're just blinding yourself to the truth that politics are all a scam. It doesn't matter if it honestly doesn't really matter if it's Hillary or Trump. I, 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 it doesn't really matter, and it would have made a difference if Bernie could have been. But no one votes, anyways. The, everything is skewed. It doesn't matter. None of it's real. Ever since 2000, when Bush stole the election away from oh, Al Gore, God, and everyone's like, yeah. "Oh well, we that- let it happen again and again. We let ourselves be silenced. We let big money take the lead in everything, in everything, and it's got to. St- it's not going to stop. It's. I it can't stop. Won't stop. And,
3: uh-uh,
1: uh-uh. and it doesn't, I mean, so I'm moving to Peru. This is, this is why
3: I miss 2008 when, you know, when everything was grassroots and then Will, you had people. He's a liar too. Oh, no, no, no. Who fucking cares? Barack Obama lies about shit too. Oh, I, oh, I know. They all every, lie. every Every politician is a liar. No, I, yeah. I definitely, I, and to me, every politician is pretty much an asshole and evil. You know, they always have their hand in the money pot, but there's always bad or worse bad or worse. there's always bad and worse so i'll take the bad with the rather than the worse i mean it, it's just you know it's
1: i on. i want i mean yep. i'm re- it's gonna explode if if trump is elected world war three will come about so quickly oh my
3: god yeah the, our
1: economy will fail the world economy will fail he has no idea what he's doing. He's going to, who, who's he even going to put on his, on his, there is his no, board?
3: He, he has no policies. He has he no has policies. No well, it it's just going to be biz- big
1: business policies. Then that means that he'll be led by, you know, the...
3: Roger Ailes of Fox News.
1: Well, just they'll be led by the corporations who gives him the money, who's been helping him, who helped on the campaign.
3: His own corporate... I mean, sad. the thing is, like, all this fundraising, it
1: just... Uh, yeah, and so that's the much. other thing about political fundraising. To, to get them... That goes to nothing except getting them elected. It doesn't help us at all.
3: There's too much it money in politics. It does,
1: exactly. And it doesn't do anything for us. It doesn't help build the road. It doesn't help with free internet for everybody. The The money that we spend on the ridiculousness of just getting someone into an office, the pieces of paper and the stuff they pay for the TV and the economy, its own economy... Politics is its own economy, they make their own money, it's, everything is happening, what are they making? What are you doing? What does all that mean? Oh, you get someone in office. What? Why not take money and spend it by a school or have an after school program or another
3: because that would be doing too much good for the community that's why (laughs) that's the problem there should be
1: more grants why why do I have to scrimp and save and fucking work my ass off every month to try to make this place stay open why can't we get some funding from the community because we're a community radio station and all these people that are involved and get to have free speech and yay and and yet when it comes to something like that, there's oh, there's no money. There's no money in the budget for that. We can't, you know, give to creativity or to you know people expressing themselves. We wouldn't want free expression because that might mean that people are thinking. <gasps> people are thinking. God forbid. Don't let it happen. No, keep everybody dumb so that they can vote with their dollars. I'm, and I'm reading, ugh, it's gonna be sweet. I'm Gail. reading something oh. right
3: now on Huffington Post. Um, Trump campaign paid Trump's companies over five hundred thousand. 000- Dollars in August um, so Republican uh, presidential nominee Trump's campaign paid more than $500,000 in August to companies the brash businessman owns accordingly the chief benefic- beneficiaries were Trump's aviation company and his office headquarters in Manhattan TAG Air was paid nearly $320,000 for operating the campaign jet and Trump Tower collectively near collected nearly $170,000 in rent for the month of August.
1: Oh, my gosh. So he's paying himself.
3: It's a con. It's a con. The whole thing has been a con the whole time. Duh. And it gets we to be a tax about, write-off, too. We, we talked about this months ago, how much of a con man he is. Yeah. And the people, I hate you you stupid people out you, there. Trump
1: University, and yes, nobody's talking about that still. Not
3: anymore. No, because he's he's got so much dirt, but people, I don't know why, I like the way he talks. Really? You like the way he no, talks about No, they like it that nothing. he's,
1: they like. That he was on The Apprentice. They like that he's a TV star. He's they like t- that he's been in movies in the 80s and 90s. They like that he's this
3: I just, I just,
1: personable fellow, like. As a TV character, as a reality TV character,
3: there's, and these people are so afraid. To make America great again. So put women back in the house and put those color people back in the fields. Oh, I'm it's so just, worried just, about. Know, it's that's what making America great again. The is. next president Seriously? is going to
1: get to choose a Supreme Court justice. We are
3: fucked.
1: And if you let, <laughs> if you let Donald Trump, a person who's totally motivated by money, put whoever he wants in the Supreme Court. You don't think you don't think that he's going to be motivated by money to make that choice? And and the Supreme Court justice is supposed to be the most impartial, the law of the land, right?
3: That's I mean, that's what it's all about is money, and this is why there's too much fucking money in politics. Yeah. There is way too much even before Donald Trump. Even, There's just it's... way too much money in politics.
1: And all right, we're getting we're getting really heated about this. Uh, we're going to invite in our special guest today, all the way from LA. It's Stephen Allen Green. Yay. Hey, hey,
4: hey, hey! What are you doing back in uh, San Francisco? I know, I know. Well, um, I came up uh, to do uh, a benefit for uh, the East Bay Stand Down and produced it as well which is uh, for homeless vets it's a big event cool. in Oakland I did it a couple of years ago and it went really well and I tell you it was really great uh, I, I, I was so I was hosting and had some really great comics and I wasn't really hitting the crowd and uh, I was getting frustrated and then I remembered who I'm performing for and what they've sacrificed I stopped feeling sorry for myself and I got funny again with some dog, talking dog jokes <laughs>
1: Uh, do, do, uh, vets, uh, so homeless vets, that's a bummer. Yeah. Uh, right. Cause you know, they've served our country and everything and now they have nowhere to live. Yes. But uh, do they have senses of humor about that? Can you do, I mean. That's a good you-
4: question. <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I, of course, like, uh, every comic I was, uh, beating myself up for not for, for, afterwards for forgetting to talk relevancies. Um, uh, but I did touch upon it a bit. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, they, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're people that don't, they seem like people who are, who don't feel like victims uh, any more than any one of us do in, in terms of the system, just like you were talking moments ago about Trump. Right. So we're all part of the same country, and, uh, you know, they've just heard it all, you know, because they, they joke with each other in the foxhole, and you've got to realize that, and... Uh, they're a great bunch of people that are really brothers in arms.
1: So are these vets, they're not really, we used to hear when I was growing up, it was the Vietnam vets, Vietnam vets, but they're probably, these are probably first Gulf War, second Gulf, yeah. like Afghanistan, maybe Afghanistan. And our, I, Iraq. I think, Are there yeah. still, are there, is there yeah. still that sort of, because that, that seemed like the first wave of vets where we kind of started getting this American like yeah. tableau French-like. of the homeless vets. And I yeah. feel like that sort of came out of Vietnam where we said, oh, we hated that war. We didn't like it at all. We didn't agree with it. So then we somehow displace that negativity maybe onto the veteran. And it's, oh, and it just, be, didn't it become like a strange tabloid? Like, oh, the homeless Vietnam veteran. Oh, yeah, yeah totally. Crazy, I, I, re- I
4: remember when Woodstock was happening and the, the local vets in uh, upstate New York, you know, and these damn hippies and all that. <laughs> um, I think... Uh, it you know it took literally took two generations to clear that misconception out of the way, and I think most people, and, uh, even and 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 really especially the, uh, the 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 intellectual liberals that we are, um, <laughs> uh, you know, embrace it and realize you know it's uh, it it. it, 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 it There's the the, the myth which was based on truth about the man who wanted to go to a foreign country and kill, you know, and however you justify it. Um, And and I think that, you know, we're, as a nation, we're, we're maturing to the point where I think we understand that we're each pieces of a giant puzzle called America, a machine that we don't really understand how it works and we have to do what we have to do to survive. And regardless of what their intention was, uh, they risked their lives um, literally uh, for free speech. If you think about it, you know, I lived in London for 20 years and just in my neighborhood you could see buildings with uh, a darker color brick on the building because uh, the other building with a lighter color brick was bombed by the Nazis right in my neighborhood. Wow. So you, you get the sense that, wow, it's, you know, there but for the grace of God or whatever, you're pretty close to being decimated. Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters.
1: Right, <laughs> absolutely yeah. Ghostbusters. So, but then what happened, this is the weird switch with America, is that when we're talking about World War II and World they were, War I, they too. were
0: heroes. People were heroes. Yeah,
1: they were And heroes. they went, they yeah. said, oh, I'm giving my, the women, they changed the jobs, the guys were like, I'm going to serve the country, I'm going. And then we have sort of, then there was a draft and it was like okay no one wants to go but you're forced to go and now we've moved away from that again we i mean we don't have a draft we have just but there's a lot of people that enter the military because somehow we've snowed them now with education
3: but we've actually it's actually a lot of turnout for people wanting to go into the army now and so now i've heard that they're speculating trying to do a draft again
4: oh because really?
3: yeah because of the fact that there has been like a low number of turn up of people wanting to go into the Army or the Marines because well of the, because of the fact of what you, when you come back home sometimes you're not guaranteed yourself back Meaning mentally,
1: right? Well, know. and there's it doesn't seem like there's service. They 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 promise you the sky and then they give you the dirt. You yeah. know, like, oh, we're gonna give you forty grand for college. We're gonna give you all of these benefits. We're gonna Broken give promises. you give you give you give you. And then it there's always like a thing like you didn't fill out some paperwork or you didn't get it in time. There were certain like only certain months of the year or something that um, I had a friend who was I, in the navy mm. and he tried to get his forty grand and it just didn't um, it didn't happen. It didn't really materialize, uh. and and I. I never really understood like how they could snow you like that. Or you have to do six years, and you have to do something else with the eight. Yeah,
4: year. shut the front door. There's a draft. Yeah. I
3: think you know the since Vietnam all the way to present, every the wars that we've fought within the past 50 years, we've been misled. There's no World War II was actual the actual last war that we we had to fight. That was actually the. There was no reason for us to be in Vietnam. Vietnam, Desert Storm was why. Uh, the Iraq and Afghanistan war. You know, we were trying to get Saddam. We, we, okay, we got him. So why are we still in Afghanistan? You know, we're fighting these wars that we actually there's no reason. Why are we there? There is.
1: Well, I think that the difference is that the reasons, the real reasons, were there are not, are not being made clear to a those fighting in those places and b people at home who are funding those wars they're not telling us the real reason that we're there they, they haven't been talking about like you know the, the heroin in poppy afghanistan fields. the poppy fields they're not talking about they're not talking about the farmers oil. they're not talking about oil they're not they're not they're saying they're talking about freedom or they're creating an some sort of enemy that we're supposed to hate or oh, like
3: yeah the boogeyman the
1: Viet- the Vietnamese the Ho Chi Minh Trail that we're fighting communism we're fighting we're <laughs> fighting terrorism we're fighting but these big amorphous isms how do you fight an ism yeah
3: the boogeyman that's what it is and then
1: we hate <laughs> the guys when they come back so back to this uh, when is this show that you're producing
3: in Oakland
4: oh that it was last Friday oh it was last Friday yeah how did it go uh, well, it was it was great, you awesome. know. It was yeah, it was a lot of fun, and uh, we're planning on possibly doing a network of them around the nation. Awesome. Yeah.
1: Is there a website people can go to?
4: Uh, Eastbaystanddown the dot something.
1: Stand down. I like instead of stand up, stand down.
4: Stand down. Yeah. yeah. But but it's but that's more about them, and they have uh, you know all kinds of facilities and health and 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 uh, stuff for for the veterans. Gotcha. Yeah. You
1: were never you never fought in a war, right?
4: No, but I was married.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> that is a battle.
4: Yeah, yeah, that's a that battle. Yeah, I lost. Um, no, I never fought in a war. I was, uh, during the Vietnam draft, I was uh, 13 years old. Oh, so
3: wow.
1: So you just missed the, you were in between wars. I
4: was in between wars.
1: You got the Cold War.
4: I got, yes. You got a
1: big dose of Cold
4: War. I got the big dose of Cold War. I got the yeah. cold shoulder from the Cold War. Right, right. From the Hot War. yeah. But you know, comedy is warpan.
1: Yeah, pfft, tell me about it. How is LA going? How do you feel about LA?
4: Well, LA is—you uh, know—I grew up there, and uh, I, you know, I've lived all over, including London, 20 years in New York, and San Francisco. And um, uh, LA is has not changed, but in the sense that it's always growing. The comedy scene <laughs> there—it's always growing. It's always growing. The the uh, the, the comedy scene there is uh, quite busy, quite varied. Um, and quite interesting. Um, it still attracts, and it's still mainly about, you know, uh, more about how do I get famous, how do I get work, uh-huh. than it is about the art, the comedy. But having said that, there's still a tremendous amount of comedy artists out there that are sticking true to their colors and doing some great, brilliant work. But it's it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting town because... You never know what's going to happen. Anything can change. Your your you, your ticket to paradise can come any second.
1: <laughs> uh, what's you, what? What kind of projects are you doing down there? Are you are, yeah. are you doing are you doing yeah. more film? Are you doing more yeah. voiceover work? Are you doing?
4: Well, yeah, I've done. I've I, I'm doing a lot of things. I'll just give you just a couple of sprinkles here. Yeah. So I did a play.
1: Cool. Uh,
4: yeah, that was fun. I got to play an, a comedy Nazi. <laughs> um, uh, and I, I got I fought Wonder Woman In this play Awesome And she tied me up Which was rather sexy um, With the
1: truth lasso
4: w- Yes Lasso of truth Yes Exactly And I and I loved it Because I, I got to sort of Channel you know A little bit of Peter Sells A little bit of Bernie Capel From uh, Get Smart So I was like You know uh, Wonder Woman. Uh, alas, we uh, we meet again. No, was, I was talking to Steve Trevor. Steve Trevor, alas, we meet again. You and your girlfriend. <laughs> and then I did a movie uh, for this really great filmmaker named Sam Gonzalez Jr. It's just now at the San Diego and... Uh, Orlando Film Festival cool. it's a Vietnam film called Railway Spine I played a Jewish art dealer gangster I got to shoot a gun and I got shot and it was really cool
1: <laughs> Jewish art dealer gangster yes. badass
4: that was fun hardcore. and then um, I'm making big progress behind the scenes with my foundation the Laughter Foundation Laughter Foundation we've got a great board including uh a board of advisors including uh, Margaret Cho and Eddie Brill, who cool. booked Letterman, a great comic, and and uh, Craig Tennis, who booked The Tonight Show, and uh, Carl Gottlieb, who, who wrote uh, The Jerk with Steve Martin, and and um, so we're trying to uh, we're we're talking to a very big venue about producing a big benefit uh, for the Laughter Foundation, and this is the Laughter Foundation does two things. It's, it's it helps comedians in urgent need uh, financially. Um, and we eventually want to have a, s- a system of therapists that can be immediately triaged to comedians because they have special needs. I don't want to see another comedy suicide in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we want to build a world-class museum to study and exhibit the art, history, and science of comedy. <gasps>
1: I that's love that! Awesome. not be that's cool? Awesome. That's amazing! That that is that's awesome. the
4: thing. That's amazing. That's amazing. So for example, we would have an e- exhibition of um of uh, of podcast comedy oh, you right. know Sweet. and the evolution of it um where it's going you know it'd be, it be it's 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 you know panelists talking it's gallery pictures Right. it's, it's a comedy show it's interactive it's it's that kind of thing
1: yeah and i mean there's so much great stuff t- there's so much comedy history dealing with women you know that Absolutely. joan rivers was the first person to ever perform on stage while pregnant uh Wow! That, that was the fir- Yeah, wow. she was the first. She was like the first live pregnant woman on stage. Wow! And uh, did she
4: w- get paid twice?
1: Yeah, right. And that was with her daughter, the one who likes to be on the TV now. Melissa. Melissa. Yeah. Well, we
4: have an ex- exhibition. And her
1: husband killed himself.
4: He, he did. It's a trend. Um, So we we, we have a a theoretical, everything's theoretical until we we do it, but we have an exhibition called, um, you know, basically History of Women and Comedy. And we'd start with Fanny Bryce Uh and go to Amy Schumer and everything in between. And then sort of compare how women uh, express themselves, what they said in uh, congruence or in parallel with what was going on in the times sure, so someone for example, like Joan Rivers, today might seem kind of tame, but if you look back to the environment, the world that she was in at the time, she was a pioneer
1: right, absolutely, yeah, and Lucille ball all of, well any yeah. any woman. And especially if they were writing, if they were doing their own writing too, that I think that was very different because w- women weren't necessarily accepted as.
4: No, they weren't. But back in the twenties, I mean, you had Dorothy Parker. Probably, I love Dorothy you know, Parker. She's the, amazing. She's amazing. She was, you know, probably the the uh, certainly the wittiest uh, uh, woman, female, whatever it is. She writer. wrote a
1: story about abortion in 1919. Really? Yeah. It was really great, and it was uh, it was about a, a woman who's. Uh, a secretary and she's kind of mousy and she starts having sex with her boss and he's just a jerk and he's got a family or whatever and then she gets pregnant and then he the boss gets her friend to take her to somebody to help the situation right. and they never like say she got an abortion but the story is about abortion it's yeah. about what happens to this poor girl's life who ends up leaving and going back to kansas or wherever the fuck she came from after this horrible abortion thing and it's this little it's, it's a great it's a great little story. But she's
4: a great writer. And, yeah. and the thing about great writers, I mean, Fran Lebowitz of today and, and Tamma Janowitz, and the, th- the thing about great writers is that, um, especially female writers, um, because there's no machismo there, uh, what makes them great and powerful is, is when they speak the truth. And, uh, you know, most people can't handle the truth. Right, right, right,
3: right. Especially if it's coming out of a woman's mouth. Exactly. You know? Like, someone else to throw in there is Moms Mabley. Oh yeah. Uh, who also was a pioneer. She goes back to like the 40s too. You know, with her her wits of like talking about with being with younger men and what have you which Yeah, it's just like something that whoa. You know, she, she's older. Women
1: enjoying sex. Oh exactly. my goodness. Can't have That's that. not. And she's older
3: so it's just like what, you know, she's right. supposed to be a grandma, but you right. know, it's, you know. She
4: was she was revolutionary. Yeah. She really was. And I remember watching her on all these very uh, White bread uh, talk shows, shows. and yeah, <laughs> yeah, in the 70s, and God bless her. You know, I mean, I think her age was her passport.
3: Yeah, most definitely, most definitely. There's a
1: there's a comedian out right now, C.C. Williams, and she's around. She's 70, and when she's been on the podcast, you can't tell from her voice that she's 70. She sounds really young in her voice, but she has a lot of funny jokes about having sex with younger guys, too, and that always makes me laugh because we just sort of desexualize women once they get past a certain age. Oh,
3: absolutely, But yeah. she's a hot
1: 70. I'm like, damn, girl. Yeah. Like, you look gr- She looks great. And same thing, Sandra Risser, 75. And she and I were talking at Comedy Day, and she's so funny. And she's like being her little shaky self, and she's like, I still work out. I'm like, I know you do. You look great. She used to be a professional bodybuilder, like, years ago. And and uh, she has her sex jokes too and it's just funny because once women get to a certain age people are like oh, yeah but it's i'm over. like
3: look at no,
4: these new no, ladies no. this is great i've always i've i i i when i was younger i always had older women and and, and even in my latter years i mean you know i'm i uh, i'd rather have an old guitar than a new one <laughs> <laughs>
1: nice sure you don't have to break it in yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah. and it's got g string it's got ah <laughs> uh,
1: so the Laughter Foundation. Where? Yeah. How can people um, the,
4: the say they want to?
1: They want to yeah. PayPal you, or they wouldn't want to PayPal. They want to. Donate that you guys do you have a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe or just a page where people well, always have a donate yes. button.
4: Yes, I mean if they go to the laughterfoundation.org, but we also have they can donate something. But the thing is, we're we're just in process of becoming a 501. Oh, I um, see. Uh-huh. So what we're offering now is if they we're selling we're going to build the comedy museum and the comedy museum is going to have a brick wall, and uh-huh. we're selling bricks, people's names, and there's going to be a link to their businesses. So you can go on the website and buy a brick, it goes up online immediately, and then our plan is to build a brick wall in Vegas. And then help us, uh, the brick wall will help us attract the attention and and the money we need to hire architects and professional people to build the museum. Um, So that's the laughterfoundation.org. But it's not a donation. It's a purchase of a brick. Um, uh, We are going to be launching something on Kickstarter. And then within a few months, I hope, Knockwood will be an actual 501, which means people can donate. Uh, they could before when we had something called a fiscal receiver, which is a person. Or we have a, one know, of those. We yeah, have one of those. We have
1: a we have an umbrella, a nonprofit umbrella. There you go. But they get seven percent.
4: They get well. We were paying ten, but and oh. it's also they're not writing the check to Mutiny Radio. They're writing it to someone else. It always right. gets confusing. But um, we're working on fixing all that. And um, I had some interesting news today. I got an email this morning, so I ran a few GoFundMe campaigns. Yeah. Uh, including one when I was homeless in L.A. suddenly and didn't have any money or job. And within about 18 hours, I raised enough to get an apartment.
1: Wow. I know.
4: So GoFundMe contacted me this morning, and they're doing a little video presentation, and they want to have me in it.
1: Cool. Isn't
4: that neato, Kino?
1: Yeah. Awesome. So, um, hey, we'll we'll get a little personal. What what was the situation that you suddenly found yourself in? homeless in LA, I mean, it and it, mm-hmm. I, it can happen to anybody. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that we're all pretty close. We, we so all are paycheck, a little bit two steps yeah. away from being homeless because yeah. it could be medical bills. It Absolutely. could be, it could be a family member that suddenly becomes ill and you have to take care of them and you, you know, don't have the resources. Like what was your particular situation?
4: Well, there's a long and a short answer. I'll give you the long one first, which isn't that long. <laughs> um, I, I had, plenty of money and plenty of success uh, in showbiz and in real estate and family money and uh, divided up like three ways in my life for about 25 years and I was living in England doing all that. I owned property there. I was on television over there. I headlined the clubs. I acted did everything. Uh, You know, I was very successful over there. Thank goodness to those lovely people over there, Knockwood. And when I came back here to take care of my mom who was very ill, you know, I couldn't really, you know, it was like I'm an older guy and the recession and uh it was really tough uh so I've been kind of scraping by uh with writing contracts comedy gigs some acting and and some help from my friends sometimes a couch or a meal um I had basically the short answer now is that I was living in Hollywood with a uh with a girlfriend um whom I met at my day job and uh uh, it just got to the point where basically uh, I was kicked out of the apartment on Christmas day oh. and uh you know, I went back. I said, "Okay, I'm going to." That's gonna... so dramatic. Oh well, she was. That's so dramatic. I know. I know. That's I know. So wrong. It was so it's wrong. Just
1: so dramatic. I know. Why did she have to be dramatic like the, that on Christmas? You yeah. can't could... get anything done on Christmas.
4: I know. I, 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 I was 26. <laughs> li- I know. I was literally walking down Hollywood Boulevard with my backpack in the rain, no umbrella, about 10 bucks in my pocket. Oh
1: my God. And
4: who am I going to call? So. I found couch surfing uh, at my friend Dave Cyrus, who made a film w- that I was in, and now he then he wrote for SNL for a year. Cool. Now he writes for the Smigel's dog. I forget what they call it. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I couched at his place for a while, and then I just got to the point where I said, you know, I, 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 I really want to be independent again. I used to have money. I used to make money. I had my own apartment, and I had a BMW, and I had trips to Hawaii, and I... Right. Spent money on meals. It felt and, like
1: a real American.
4: Uh, like a real American. Yeah. And uh, I said, well, you know, the biggest problem, when you become homeless and jobless and carless yeah. Yeah. in L.A. In L.A.? In, no LA, in no car, L.A. No car you, you, People don't understand. It's kind of like you fall off the boat. And people are busy dealing with their own problems. But the problem is is that you discover a whole complicated web of problems when you have no money because it, it, everything becomes more expensive when you're poor you can't cook anything at home you have no right. home
1: did you go to did you did you go to EBT did you try to get some food stamps i had
4: food stamps for about a year yeah. i got them in san francisco and then when i went down to la they cut me off because um, i was they red flagged me. They saw some charges in L.A. Uh, at Trader Joe's, and they thought... Uh, that it was stolen. Yeah. And then basically wow. I said, well, I'm in L.A., and they went, still, you're not in San Francisco, so they cut me off. No. Yeah. Staying
3: in California, I don't I know. understand that.
4: This is a weird country.
3: It's very...
1: It's, it's so It's The problem is that when you need help the most, yep. it seems the most, A,
4: difficult to get it. Yep when it should be the easiest to get well i mean that's the thing you know uh it's it, 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 we 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 don't understand in this country that the neighbor down the road that you don't know might actually be the key to your survival right you know and you we 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 we, we don't understand that that it's to our own benefit to help other people um you know and i think uh, you know, L.A. is like this place that um, people will only help you if it helps them. Hey, can you give me a lift to the airport? Sure. Uh, can I be in your movie? In <laughs>
3: right. What's in it for me?
4: What's in it for me? And it's just because L.A. is so stressful to begin with. And it's, I'm not being too cynical. I'm trying to find my national insurance card I'm going to show you. Uh, yeah. So I had this when I became um, a resident, legal resident in England. They gave me this. So cool. like now healthcare. this healthcare. Now this is interesting for two reasons. One is health care from my government just simply because I became legal to live in the country. Wow. Just like we'll take care of you and you don't have to worry about a thing. You can even go to your own private doctor and they'll supplement. Wow. But the other interesting thing is that the healthcare number is my employment number my social security number
1: sure that makes sense
4: so when i got my first job at the bbc they said what's your national insurance number so it's a very simple system
1: that makes so much sense doesn't it because i mean that's my social security number is the only thing they use it for is uh, when you're in college they used you know here's social security number for everything 572714297 it was <laughs> the first thing when i was in college and i was you know 18 years old it was the first thing I memorized. I was like, I need to so memorize this So why isn't thing. our
4: social security number our health care number?
1: Why isn't our social security number my food stamp number? But, why isn't it that? Why isn't it? Why isn't right. that just my number? It would be so much easier to track me. They'd be. It'd be so much easier.
4: So much easier. That's the thing is that most of us sensible Americans want to be noticed and and put on the list. We're not hiding. We're not paranoid NSA. Uh, you know, we're not freaking out. We we say you know we want it but the system stinks you know i i mm-hmm. had just moved addresses and so i was calling up my healthcare provider from medi-cal right and i got sent from one number to the next oh, oh yeah no you need to call that one to make an appointment call that one no you need to call, call that, that one, one. And it went on for an hour and a half until i got i I, I, ser- I seriously said you know it's easier to stay sick
3: right that's what that's what they do <laughs> that's the game they play you, you think it's a function. conscious game Oh, Absolutely. Of course, yeah. I mean they it's for a reason. Like even when you're trying to get your EBT card, it's kind of like the same kind of runaround, or like you need this form. Or if you're trying to get unemployment, well you need this form yeah. or the like it's like so on but and so on But what do you on. think
4: their motivation is, is if it's conscious? Because
1: they don't want people to they have social to services.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well that's that's probably they their don't answer. Want they
3: don't
1: the less people they have in social service they don't I don't think they want to give people And I the thing is this, it goes back to this for me, is that I don't think that I don't agree with how we break down monetary worth in our country, in that you're an artist, I'm an artist, we're all artists in this room. Why aren't artists, why aren't we compensated monetarily for our gifts?
4: I'll give you an answer, because I think about this a lot. Uh, You know, the rest of the world, especially Europe, uh, sponsors their art. And uh, Amer- and and it's the same reason why England has healthcare, because uh, when it was basically a functioning monarchy, um, the, the the rulers of the country said, "Okay, what's best for the country for its citizens," but also. What's good social engineering? The reason that there's health care in England, my understanding of it, is that during World War One, they wanted to make sure that they had healthy soldiers and, and healthy uh, wives at home working in the munitions factory. So it was a military decision to give um, citizens health care. But, it, it, but if, if if the US government understood, understood and those stupid senators uh, who are just corrupt corpses, if those guys understood that if they truly want to, let's say, drop the level of gang violence in this country, for example, or uh, uh, veteran suicides, or whatever social thing that is actually costing us money, then they'll invest money in the arts, because the arts can address issues and open minds and make connections and make people feel... You know, here's my thing. If I I would wish it the next time I pay taxes next year, if there was a little box at the bottom of my tax form that said... Is 5% of your taxes are discretionary for you. So tick one of these 10 boxes. And the 10 boxes means that 5% of the taxes I'm paying go towards um, homeless vets. Uh, right, pregnant right. women sure. uh, uh, uh drug addicted individuals if i if i could say you know sure. it's my prerogative wouldn't that in give enthusiasm that's the thing we're not allowed to participate in the democracy the only times yeah, that the average right. american citizen is in contact with his government is when he's given a a, a a ticket by the police or goes to the post office that's it
3: or going to jail
4: or going to jail <laughs> yes going to jail yes welcome to jail <laughs> Where you'll never probably that, get out.
1: That's a really great idea of having discretionary taxes.
4: You think? Because then I think? could
1: give it to, you know, I'd be like, Head Start programs. I'd be like, right. uh, every three-year-old should have access Education. to preschool.
4: Right. Because oh, yeah.
1: there are so many children that don't get to start on first base even. And because they haven't, they maybe their parents can't afford Preschool, and we're so they stick them yeah. in front of the TV, and yeah. they go, "Sesame Street will do a good enough job." It's like, no, 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 no. So those
3: kids fall the, behind. Well,
2: you, right. you
1: see the difference between children who've been to preschool and children who haven't, and then when they when they can really grasp reading. Oh yeah. Whether it's kindergarten, first, second, or third grade. That's the
4: most important time. We're, some we're kids very young, never you know, even you know, get it. We're too young a country to understand the effects of what we do today. Um, you know, if if exactly. So if, the, if, if, if there were more kids going to comprehensive preschools um, and, 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 you know, 20, 30 years, 20 years down the line, um, there'd be less kids in trouble, causing trouble in society, causing Absolutely. society Absolutely.
1: money. Yeah. Yeah, reading, critical thought. I, but I honestly think that the education system in our country has been culling critical thought from its curriculum since, I'm going to say... I'm going to say a little bit before 2000, a little bit before No Child Left Behind. But that's really what kicked it into high gear was oh, yeah, critical standardized- thought is bad. Teach to the test, multiple testing. choice, standardized testing, charter schools, as opposed to thinking,
4: lateral thinking,
1: right? Well, making critical choices about what you're reading and then putting it into writing and thinking about things and talking Absolutely. with other people, and th- these are just skills that are completely thrown to the wayside, and it's very sad to me because I just I see now count when later today count how many people you see engaged in their screen as opposed to engaged with each other or engaged in the world around them I agree
3: with that yes i yeah definitely i was just reading something about like some of the charter schools and what have you and how a lot of the charter schools have closed down because of you know lack of money lack of uh, teachers because the teachers are held prisoner by what they can teach You know the curriculums, and you know a lot of these teachers. This is why they go off to other countries to teach Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. they have a little bit more freedom to teach critical thought, right? Rather than here the American school system, which is totally fucked up. It's it's pretty bad. It's been fucked up for a while ever since I've been in school, and I went to Catholic school, (laughs) and that's fucked up. But I mean standardized testing is i mean there's no critical thought everyone's proce- processes things differently But, I
1: mean, we just we still need to be processing them. I think that people aren't processing, and that's the problem. It's, here's the right answer, here's not, here's... Everyone
3: has their certain speed and level, too, of processing things as well. Like, I'm not a test taker. I got an 11 on my ACTs. Does that make me dumb? No. I'm pretty fucking smart. I do dumb shit. (laughs) But, you know, just because I got an 11 on my ACTs don't make me a dumbass. But But in society, that's what it tells us. Like, you know... Hey, You're got a low You're grade.
1: good at tests taking. Yeah. That, well, that we we, I don't know why we have to rank people in test taking. It's, it seems like life seems to be more cumulative than that.
4: Well, yeah, we should have on our res. I always thought we should have on our job resumes, you know, things like uh, you know our jobs and our education, but also. Uh, uh, yeah, f- uh, last week a uh, car broke down, I was going to work, but I figured out that uh, if I fix this, then do that, and then I brought a cup of tea to my neighbor who was ill.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have that
4: on nice. the resume. Oh, that's a creative person, and that's what we need. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're, that's, that is the, that is a, the major problem in education uh, is that we don't teach uh, people how to think. Yeah. We teach them things they should know, and they're not inspired by it they're not given any powers every child every child out there is a potential harry or harriet potter if we just <laughs> absolutely show them the magic Right. Why aren't we showing them the magic?
1: Yeah, I, I used to teach. Uh, did you? I did. I taught for four years, and then I had to get out. How, uh, it was no. How child old? Left how old did you teach? I taught uh, junior high and high school.
4: Oh my goodness! Continue
1: oh. special education and continuation high school.
4: Yeah. Oh, in oh, continuation high school. Yeah, both. Oh my goodness! Did you have bodyguard?
1: <laughs> no, um, I was. I, well, we had security guys on the, the campus, but there was only one time that a really large child threw a desk at me, and it's because oh I made God. all my I made all my students in my classroom read out loud. It was like a thing. Everyone knew in Pam's class, I didn't even go by Miss Benjamin. I either went by Benjamin or by Miss Pam or whatever, depending on how old they were. But um, this one kid, everyone knew you always have to read aloud in my class. I don't care if it's a sentence. I don't care if it's a word, but you got to do it. And he did not want to read aloud. He was 17 and he got up and he threw a desk at me.
4: How do you throw a desk? How big? big it was, were these desks? you know, it
1: was, it was, you know, one of the chairs attached to the desk. You know, the oh two legs God. in front and the legs in back. And he picked up the desk and he tossed it to the front of the room. And I was like, I'm going to call security right now. Wow. everybody, calm down. But he knew. He threw the desk and then he ran out the door. So I was like, all right, he knows that. He knows that that wasn't safe.
3: He knows reading is not fundamental. No, He didn't like...
1: He, did, he was Books really bad. mad about reading. He really didn't want to read. Because yeah, he felt to, like...
4: Today, he would just block you on Facebook, I think.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Facebook is the worst. So, um... The Laughter Foundation is super exciting, and um, and I'm I'm glad that you're trying to find an actual way to change the world through the you know the well I'm
4: trying art and whatever I'm I'm trying and the the other you know another part of it is our outreach. We really really want to show the world that comedy is a very important. uh, I I view it as a public trust, not just someone's career and my own career even, but as a public trust. And I mean, if we had more comedy in the world, in in everyday life, we'd be a better place. Don't forget yeah, I, I lived agree. in England where they have that where you, where, the, where the prime minister can you know be witty and joke around and not be mean and people can joke back and and and, and humor is extraordinarily it gives us insights into life Absolutely. and we're, you know we're all improvisers on the planet guessing what move to do next. Why not be funny and why does funny have to be aggressive and hurtful? It's not. we're all part of it you know we used to tease each other when we were kids why can't we tease each other when we're adults basically translation I love you and I'm seeing how tough you are
3: comedy is is very educational that's why I got into it in the first place it's very educational because it it, it kind of it's scientific as well you know just seeing how people react to certain things and seeing like you know you know um how you know certain jokes were or if you're a storyteller you know and so j- joke
1: theory in itself i guess could be a science you yeah know, absolutely. How you construct your jokes
3: and you know we get our com- we get our news from comedy now yeah so, right I mean, yes it's, it's the daily it's, show it's, yeah, it's, right people trust comedy news over your basic straightforward you know, boring, lying news. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Welcome to the lying news.
3: Yeah, welcome to faux news. Faux news. You know, so it's just like, you know, I think here, I I think maybe now people are starting to understand a little bit how comedy is very important and how laughter is so much of a therapy. I I think that
1: people are finally starting to see comedy as an actual art form, like one of the fine arts. I think that's a new thing, though. I don't think that... I don't think that people have recognized stand-up comedy as an art form. As like, they'd be like, well, you know, poetry's a real art. And I (laughs) I really don't think that there's much difference between poetry and comedy.
4: Um, Well, I mean, you know, what you're saying is true. Um, You know, the public is exposed to what they see on television mostly. And uh, I review and have reviewed for five years, uh, stand-up comedy as an art form for the Jewish Journal. I write a blog called Enjoy the Veal. And, (laughs) and, I'm uh, reviewing movies now and theater, but I also still review live stand-up. And, and what I love about it, you know, I'm a, I'm a stand-up since March of 81, you know, professional yeah. stand-up. Uh, professional, bring my briefcase. Um, you know, but I've learned so much, and every comedian speaks, every origin. here's what I know. Every original comedian speaks, thinks, acts in an original language. And it takes a joke or two jokes to understand that language. And that original language actually, I believe, affects the way the brain, the audience's brain, uh, perceives the world and perceives themselves. There's, you know, Emo Phillips and the zoom out joke, for example, um, or Jesse Elias and his um, uh, sidestepping background irony punchlines, you know. (laughs) And you realize when you look at life that way, it's 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 hilarious, you know. Life is very funny. I, just this last week, I got a lot of flack for a, a GoFundMe campaign I put together. A lot of flack. Uh, people were calling me a crook, and they're saying, you know, this and that. And you know, I just, you know, just deflected the bullets and went on and did my thing because I believed in it, and people were donating to it. Then um, I've actually took them down, and I thought, nah, eh, it's just not worth it. Well, this morning I had an email from GoFundMe. They want to feature me right. in, in a, uh, a little video they're making about GoFundMe success. So, you know, figure that out. That's funny to me. Right, That right. one day I'm being castigated. The next day I'm being honored. So, life is like that. Well,
1: but you've been in comedy for 35 years. You've yeah. probably experienced some major haters. Oh, yeah.
4: Oh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, the, you, it takes you, you, you're submerged in it. Right. You know, I mean. The comedy beef. Yeah. Who brings the beef? Who brings the beef? You know, I've, I've done shows. Um, I'll give you a story, uh, a quick two-minute story. So I was, uh, in the 90s, I was booked in a Seattle club. And uh, I used to do this act, which I'm bringing back, which is my farewell performance. Every show is my last. I tell the audience up front, this is my last show. I don't tell them every show is my last. I say, this is my last show. I get high on the laughter. I have to quit. and They don't know what to make of it. And then I'm funny for a while. I mean, for, I mean really funny. And then I, you know, one more thing. And then, I'm, then I do one more song. So I had this sing-along song called The Homicide Song, which was basically, <laughs> Have you tried homicide? Kill someone who hasn't already yet died. And it was really funny. And then at the end of it, the audience cheers because I'm saying, that's the end of my career, and they cheer for more. It's like it's like kabuki. And then I say, stop, and then I pull out a fake gun and put the gun <laughs> to my head. And first I point it to a heckler, and then I change my mind. And, and So here's what happened. So I did a great show one night, and uh, this couple, you know, like a working class couple comes up to me, and they were, uh, uh, the the woman and the man. The woman says, uh, uh, oh, the man says, you know, you were really funny, but we don't, I just want to tell you, the gun thing at the end, don't think that's good we just had you know it's had a tragedy with a kid who picked found his father's gun and i'm saying yeah i understand but it's metaphorical i'm saying if you're addicted to stand ups like putting gun to your head it's just comedy you know and and the wife was agreeing and i was like okay well how do i get out of this awkward scenario then the husband said but the homicide song that was funny <laughs> so here's what i've learned from that over and over and over again it's whatever the worst thing you do the most offensive thing people will latch on to that and say that is offensive, but everything else behind it is okay. If you remove that most offensive thing, everything moves, moves up a notch. So
1: then the homicide song becomes a problem. Right. Yeah.
4: There's always a problem. There's always a problem. Right. Always. And uh, You know, I mean, people are offended, uh, and who cares?
3: Do you think that this is like, especially with comedy today with PC, because I'm not politically correct, you know, do you think, like, because everyone gets so offended, everyone's yeah. so soft now. Yeah. You know, do you, how does that affect your comedy in, You know Performing today
4: Yeah for, Good question How does it affect me Well it, it does two things One is that I realize I have to front load A lot of jokes With information Without giving away What I'm going to do um, It's kind of like Doing magic Which I used to do For kids For kid parties And you can say Okay this is just a trick Don't be afraid The rabbit really didn't Disappear and die But uh, you follow me anyway You know So you have to <laughs> Remind people You're doing comedy And you have to Give them info uh, but the other part of it is, my by nature of who I am, I love a, I, 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 I'm love. like a moth to flame with a good challenge, especially a censorship issue, when I know I'm going to make people feel uncomfortable. I love it. When there's a tragedy, too soon. I'm going to write a book called Too Soon. <laughs> I love writing those jokes. I had a great 9-11 joke I ha- on 9-12. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I love that stuff because at the end of the day, Laughter is good.
3: It's yeah, laugh,
4: comedy, It's the end of the tragedy. story. Yeah, it's we're we're not happy that three thousand so and so people lost their lives, but we're laughing during a horrible time.
3: Yeah, and th- and that's the most therapeutic thing to do like comedy and tragedy are to the I mean it's theater you know and it's it's something that you know like I I love 9-11 it's my favorite holiday and (laughs) you know people just like oh it's too soon I'm like uh well let's talk about Pearl Harbor was that too soon too yeah you know
1: we knew about that one ahead of time too right yeah right (laughs) right
3: so I think you know I like to see people when they get offended because I like to see people squirm you know, I, you know, it, it's, that's just me. I think it's a sick, you know, twisted thing and thought that I like to
4: do. I don't like seeing people squirm. I, I understand I what you're saying. I like, I like challenging uptight people to think. You know, what I've had to do in answer to your question, seriously, is that um, uh, in today, today, what I would do and what I have done is, um, okay. So there's a joke that I've been doing, okay, um, and the way I present it is, uh, so there's a lot of horrible things in the news. And uh, you can't, you you know, there's some things you shouldn't make fun of, but as a comedian, it's my job to find the funny in the dark stuff. So once I tell the audience that, I tell them this now. Right. I never had to do this 30 years ago. Now I tell them, (laughs) I set this up. And that's when my set started three years ago so i i then tell them the true story of this poor mother in chicago about two years ago who was found in a public park pushing her dead kid on the swing and the authorities had to come and take her away and of course the kid and it was very sad and she was there's nothing more tragic than a mother losing a child i had one of those in my family so i totally get it i'm totally there pause However, as a comedian I couldn't help but see the comedy so I thought it wouldn't it be better if she just put him on the slide you know <laughs> zoom,
1: <laughs> zoom, <laughs> zoom. it would have been much easier much yet. easier that's than
4: sl- those swing what people don't think so the humor there is really based on my open callousness to a tragedy right that's what I'm displaying with that joke that's, that's the theme of that joke not children good dead children are good not uh, anything other right, than right. I'm saying I'm putting my own credibility on the line to make a point, which right. w- which is that find any- the funny in the dark. Anything's funny. Find it in the dark. And you know what? If you can find the funny in the dark, then uh, then you're then you can you can get through the dark when it's when it's when life. it gets
1: right. So uh, Stephen Allen Green, yes, you ma'am. have been in this for 35 years as yes. a comedian yes. since 1981. Yes. What would be your five? hints, helper hints that you would tell a comedian who's maybe just getting started here in comedy. And there are so many of them, you know, every day there are comedians that start and I say stop, get out of here, don't take away my stage time. But uh, every day there's new comedians that start and what would you say?
4: Right. From 35
1: years of experience.
4: Okay. So, uh, good question. Um, I I would say uh, randomly of the five, but most importantly um, and I say this to comedians who are still in the business, they t- it's my, say it to myself all the time, is, am I as funny now as I really could be? Huh. And so you're sitting there going, well, why am I doing a free gig when my friend who's not as funny as me is on uh, TV? And you go, well, okay, so that's another issue. It was the randomness of showbiz. Um, but <clears throat> always understand that you can be funnier, and to be funnier, it's not necessarily about your comedy act. It's about you as as an enlightened individual in the world. So that's a very the second point, is that try to be more enlightened as a person, and you'll understand the complexities of comedy, and it'll grow with you. Um, the other thing is, uh, the other couple of things is... Um, I've noticed that a lot of comedians, including myself, I notice that we'll talk off the comedy stage some really funny shit that we won't really do on stage. I'm constantly saying, you know, either, excuse me, let me write that down, or I'll say to my friends, use that. Why are you still, why don't you use that? It's brilliant. So try to understand that performing on stage is really conversational. Um, I had that in England where when you know, the thing about London and England and doing stand-up is that credits didn't matter. In fact, they kind of made you look bad. You know, coming to the stage has been on this show and this show and this show. That insults the audience because they have a class system there and they're not impressed with your impressive credits. They want to see what you got. And, and what that reflects is that once you get on that stage, it's just you talking to the rest of the group. You're part of that group. You're talking to that group. The group is focused on you. So um, in, in America, it's more of uh, um, sort of like uh, an assembly line where the audience is deciding who they think is going to be the next star. That's kind of the uh, hidden secret. Uh, the other thing is um, uh, uh, always write and learn Um, I would say also learn uh, other uh, disciplines learn acting uh, learn writing Um, acting can help you when I first got up here and I was reviewing comics one of the best comics I saw was Kate Willett and I even wrote in the Jewish Journal she's a great actress within the joke that's extremely important is uh, you know if you're doing a joke that really isn't based on truth. You're saying, I was on the bus the other day and this guy took his thing out and, you know, and I said, you know, but that really isn't true. you got to act it so they believe it's true.
1: She was, uh, she almost got her MFA in acting from a school in Chicago. Oh, that makes sense. She dropped
4: out. Well, that makes sense. She dropped
1: out of the MFA program to come and do comedy in San Francisco.
4: Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, a couple of other things here quickly is um, uh, two, two, two last things. One is um, realize that everything is context. So if you... Uh, like, I, I was an American, one of two, maybe American comics in England. Okay? So they paid attention to me, but they also had certain viewpoints about me. I never knew I was an American until I got to England, and, <laughs> and it wasn't always a good thing. So understand context. So if you are another bearded, mid 30s white male going down to be funny, well, that's fine, but please recognize that there are 50 other white, bearded, hipster males doing it. So, what, what, what can you? Ju- you're not in competition with them, but they are part of your context. Right. So right, understand right. that, and um, and then the last thing is, um, uh, if you can, and this can really teach you a lot, try and break every single rule you can. Every single rule, not just political correctness, but style. Come up with your own style. And then here's my final little thing: is that I always tell comics make your second, open with your second best joke and close with your best. Huh? So you in your back, in your back of your head knows how bad it's going. You got the best joke that's even better than the one you open with, and then the one that you open with really entices the audience to pay attention. That's the hardest thing, is to get the audience to think exactly the same at the same time. If you can convince an audience of three or 500 people to think and focus on you and what you're saying and trusting you that they're not wasting their time or their brain by listening to every word you're saying and you can deliver, then they'll love you.
1: Yeah, that's some really great advice, Steve and yeah.
4: And bribe um, comedy club owners.
1: And bribe <laughs> comedy club owners have, with what? Drinks, sex,
3: whatever. <laughs> well, they have plenty of drinks, All they have of plenty the above. of sex. Weed, drugs, Yeah. I, I money. Actually,
4: yeah, money. I actually say to them, listen, uh, if you, uh, don't tell anybody, but if you put me on next Friday, I won't bother you again next week. <laughs> oh no, you're kidding. Really? Okay. I will. I won't,
1: I won't bother you. I won't send you another Facebook. Yeah. Oh. Uh, thank you for being here thank you for inviting everybody me everybody needs to uh, go check out the laughter org, buy yeah. a brick buy a brick and get this new get it built, uh, get it built. you want to have it in LA no no, you wanna no have it you know, a
4: Ni- well initially we had I had Nick Kinsey at San Francisco Park and Rec two years ago um showed us, we put us on a short list for the old Exploratorium building, 117,000 square feet. And, and get this, and gave us Candlestick Park, August 2nd, 2013, the We couldn't, Candlestick was too outrageous to produce, and it wasn't money, and it was too nuts. But, um, since this has happened, uh, a couple of the board members, one of the board members has suggested Las Vegas because uh, it's tourist attraction and it's easier to build down there. I'm not sure where it would be. I think actually... I
3: think Chicago. Chicago's a great place. That's where I'm from. Where you're from? Yeah.
4: But I think San Francisco is the birthplace. It's ground zero of stand-up comedy. Yeah. And I just don't know if the tourist money is there, if the investors are there. You know
1: what, though? There's a beat museum so, I think that there could be I'm gonna a I'm going to do a small museum. one. This yeah. is one of my other board but members, the thing, Wendy. Is if there's a beat museum... I know. Of course there's going to be a comedy museum. Of Come course. Come on.
4: So, that was actually suggested to me yesterday by one of my board members. Wendy said, start small, uh, you know, and do a Kickstarter. Uh, you know, she had a friend who... Uh, the, the, uh, two partners that just raised money for a pub, so they did it in three stages. So what if I found a storefront in the Mission yeah, and called it the Comedy Museum and raised enough money to get that started? You know, I mean, that makes sense to me.
2: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, there's a space right now that's going away, and they've been looking for people, and it's been a collective space for a long time on 20th and Mission, and it was oh. called 20 Mission Hive, and they actually just closed down, and they're looking for stuff you should walk by there. And yeah. It's a big really cool empty building it's and it's big but it's not too big but it's two stories so you can like sort of change That's it great. up with the high ceilings and you could figure i mean it would be a good
4: it would that be would be a great space for you guys and, and you know it would be so it would be such a great thing so we, we produce shows we get not just comedians but we'd get writers and we'd get um, media people and social people and we talk about real serious issues you know um uh
1: I think already you've been tam- tackling homeless veterans. I think that that's
3: incredible.
4: Oh, that was just a... You're welcome. That was a gig. I love this music you have in the background. What is it? Copay. Uh, Who is it? The
3: Japanese Bjork. <laughs> Japanese Bjork. Yeah. Wow. This is played every week here on the podcast. What's her name? Uh, Copay.
4: Copay. She's great.
3: Yeah. It's, it's our theme music.
4: She yeah. sounds like an insurance company. Copay. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but do you want to pay? So have you have you ever touched uh, improv? Do you do any kind of improv Oh uh,
4: Yeah, as a matter of fact, I had a lot of improv training. I trained under the Harvey Lembeck Comedy Workshop at Paramount Studios for a couple of years under uh, Helene and Michael Lembeck. I was in improv troupes. I, st- I studied with Second City for a season. That's where I
3: studied. Yeah. In Chicago. In
4: Chicago. Well, that, <laughs> yeah. well my former roommate in Los Angeles uh, was from there and knew everybody. I met at his house. That's where I got to know George Went. Oh, he was I met there. him, That's too. Yeah,
3: He'd he come into my bar all the time.
4: Okay. <laughs> yeah, George is cool. Uh, I love improv. I love good improv. And, uh, you know, of course, Robin was uh, had his one foot in improv, one foot in stand-up. So that was always good. I mean, improv is really loosens you up, and it's about real life. And, you know, again, every day is an improv, isn't it?
3: Absolutely. That's what I say. That's my theory of life. Like, every. Like us right now, this is improv. Total. As soon as we go outside, we're going to be improving it up with somebody.
4: That's right. <laughs> the, pre- the premise is show up at Pam's, put on the phones, and improv. That's exactly. what we're doing. Improv! That's what life is.
3: Oh, yeah.
1: Uh, so there was one more segment I wanted to talk about today. This will be interesting, but it's if you see how, how you feel about it. Uh, we've been talking a lot about Americans and how stupid they are, but uh, also we're known as being very fat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because of our True. excess of and I I mean we have excess of corn syrup and yep. disgusting things that and it's very sad to me that you know the dollar menu is what so many people rely on to eat and yet it's just the worst thing you can possibly put into your body yep. is, is processed food. The the 10 nuggets at Burger King for $1.49, I don't understand how that happens. Chicken piece. That's like that's like 13 cents a nugget. How do they do it? How can they possibly do it? How do they make the food? Okay, so There's this guy, uh, he's a French philosopher named Brillant Savarin. uh, He published a couple books in 1825. And this is a short treatise that he wrote on obesity. And I think it's really interesting Mm. about how obesity in France in 1825 was starting to become a problem problem because of their excess of food and foie gras and Mm. truffles. and, Mm. and, And even after the Hundred Years' War even though after the Napoleonic they had all these treaties and stuff and they had to pay all this money to England and all these reparations they still had tons of money because everyone was eating all their food because they were so into food the French are crazy
4: I know when I went to Paris I was surprised anyone was was fat I couldn't get a waiter
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh so, by obesity, this is, this is this guy in 1825. By obesity, I mean the state of fatty congestion in which, without the individual being ill, his limbs gradually increase in volume and lose their original shape and harmony. All right? That's obesity. And I think that's a fair thing, no. that your body grows to such a, a corpulence that it... Uh, for to acquire the perfect degree of plumpness, neither too much nor too little, is the life study of every woman in the world. Yes. <sighs>
4: So do you think you think women are more concerned about being thin than men?
1: Absolutely. Yes.
4: Because?
1: Because, what society? because of what the beauty standard is. That's and I think that in 1825, it was a little different in that they wanted you to have a little corpulence because it meant that you were rich. The fatter you were mm-hmm. meant the richer you were. But you didn't want to get too fat because that's are gr-
4: I love fat chicks.
1: But once your limbs gradually increase in volume and lose their original shape and harmony, do you know what I mean? Like when you have a front butt. Have you seen the women on the bus with the front butt?
4: Front butt, yeah. That's scares me
1: it's more than a fupa it's like the you know how the ass the ass is that's like the the bottom like i have a tiny fupa but when your ass has that crack in the back right but your stomach grows one in the front where there's like a indentation mm-hmm. like its own ass crack in the front mm-hmm.
3: i know what you're talking this about this is now. this is when
1: the body loses its shape and harmony do you see like i think size is is good but uh, There is a type of obesity that is confined to the belly. I have never known an example to occur among women, for they are generally made of softer stuff than men. And obesity, when it attacks them, spares no part of their person. Uh, So this is the mankind. I call this variety gastrophe, and those affected by it gastrophers. And I myself am one of them, but although I am the bearer of a fairly prominent paunch, the lower part of my legs is still hard, and the sinews as loosely knit as those of an Arabian horse.
4: Mm, I'm getting turned on.
1: Right. So this guy was one of those big guys that had like the big belly and then the little legs, you know. Yeah. But he's saying that women don't get fat like that because we get fat everywhere.
4: Um, well, there's always the baby fat.
1: Well, you know, and, and that's that's funny. I, but, once you have a baby, it's not that people get the wrong impression. When you are pregnant, you really only need 500 calories more, which is like one glass of milk a day. Mm. And yet women will get pregnant and be like, oh, I need to eat everything. <laughs> yeah. it's like, you know, you don't actually, because really all you need is 500 more calories to sustain a baby. I mean, that's the kind of lady that when you see him from the back and you're like, they don't look pregnant. Then they turn sideways and you're like, whoa, whoa. That's because they're like eating the right
3: amount of But food.
4: again, in answer to your question, um, it's, if, I, if I understand your question, um, if I remember your question, uh, am I even here? Um, <laughs> a lot of it's economic. When, yes. I was, when I had plenty of money, and I'm not, I'm not, when I say that, I'm not either, I hope I'm not bragging, I hope I'm not no. playing violin. I'm just describing a time when I had a lot of money for a long time, um, and I would dine out or cook at home Uh, you know salmon is lovely and good for you but it's more expensive than other things sure and I've been days in the last couple of years I couldn't I I thought you know am I going to spend $14 on this salmon piece at the market or am I going to spend half of that on something else and so part of it is economic and what you were saying about the McNuggets and all that uh, you you know everyone has these different agendas you know uh, I, I could live on a forty nine instant macaroni and cheese. I love it, but I know it's not what I need. Right. Um, so that's part of it. The other part of it is is that I think a, a lot of us don't understand that we overeat in this country, no matter how hungry you are. The best thing you can do is not eat until you're full. Eat until you're no longer hungry. Right. right and you'll stop halfway through.
1: Well, but the other thing is that it takes 20 minutes from when you first start taking in food for your stomach to recognize that it's hungry. Yeah. So if we can change the way that we take meals again and instead of sitting in your car and driving in traffic and eating, yeah. like by the time you're done with ev- then you're like really full cuz you know you know what I mean like if you have like a like a a burger fries or whatever like while you're eating it, it's like really easy blah, blah, blah. and then at the, and then in 20 minutes you're like oh god I don't whoa I ate a yeah. lot There's, but if you're having yeah. a conversation with somebody and you're at a meal and you're like in taking intaking your food taking, taking bites time. then you're not going to eat as much because your stomach recognizes that it's full.
3: You're not rushing yourself. You're not right. gorging yourself. And you you said you lived in London for a while, so the portions there are smaller. So it's also about portion control, Absolutely. Too, compared to, like, totally. here, where the portions are just, like, you go to Cheesecake Factory. Right. Claim jumper. Whoa, dude. <laughs> you're going to get all this big-ass bowl of yeah. fettuccine Alfredo. Yeah. Which you don't need all, no. all you can
4: eat breadsticks. Yeah. Well, they're trying can... to say that's value, but value will be better ingredients and less Right,
1: right. right, right, right. And I I mean, I think that I don't, it's a. it's a, We're going to. But how do we change the American mindset? I've been trying to write jokes about food because, you know, Jim Gaffigan inspired me. I saw no. him once in San Francisco and he did like, I don't know, 20 minutes on food. Mm-hmm. He did like 20 minutes on McDonald's and all that. And it was great and everyone loved it and laughed every 15 seconds because it was totally everybody understood it it was the type of I mean it's a vague topic right like I'm gonna talk about fast food but he made it funny because everybody could relate to it and so I'm trying to like come up with some concepts of like you know food versus sex like we we want like the the quality of our food is shitty and and I want to equate it somehow to like the quality of sex or like maybe porn is like the McDonald's of you know, like you eat so much, you get so yeah. much porn. Like, so, how yeah. much porn do you really need? You get porn
3: anywhere. Do you, now. Do you need
1: like yeah. Do you need twenty McNuggets? Do you need to have twenty cum shots? Like, what do you need? Can we have the quality of our porn be a little better so that you don't have to maybe watch as much? I don't know. I'm trying to work on something about that.
4: Well, no, it's a, it's a very interesting um, uh, concept. I mean, I think it's very it's 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 really about you know when you're when you're totally give up responsibility and give into your desires you know it's hard you know you're, you're being you know you're having you know you're having sex with somebody and it's fantastic and and you know before or after you're going to be you know uh, eating pizza <laughs> yeah. or you know downing hot dogs even you know as it were um uh, but really the truth is you know have have uh, some sushi
1: right yeah. Have a little sushi. You know,
4: and savor it. I mean, it's really about savoring, I think, food. Um, Although, uh, if you're eating and having sex, then hot dogs would be the first thing (laughs) I'd put on the menu uh, for myself and for the loved ones around me.
1: I can't have a meat tube in my...
3: Like early parts. Or an eggplant.
1: Uh, okay, so this is what he says the causes of obesity are. Let's see if we can still agree with these today. From the observe. Okay, so first he does this cute little play where he's like, "These are these are fat people at a party, stout party. Heavens, what delicious bread! Where did you get it? Blah 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 blah. Stout party. I must remember that. I eat a great deal of bread and rolls such as these. I would willingly do without the rest. Another stout party. But what on earth are you doing? Swallowing the liquid part of your soup and leaving that delicious Carolina rice. That's, "'That's a poor diet, I tell you. "'Rice is the joy of my life. "'Together with flour and noodles and things of that sort, "'there's nothing more nutritious, cheaper, "'or more easily digestible.' "'Very stout party. "'Monsieur, be so good as to pass me those potatoes in front of you. "'At this rate, they're disappearing. "'I'm afraid I will be too late.' "'Monsieur, but they are within your reach. "'But aren't you going to help yourself? "'There are certainly enough for both of us after the deluge. "'Oh, no, thank you. "'To my mind, the only value of potatoes "'is as a safeguard against starvation.' what gastronomical heresy there's nothing better than <laughs> potatoes i eat them in every conceivable form and in any appearance in the second course whether a la Lyonnaise or or souffle i here and now stick my claim to them anyways there's all these fat people talking around a table
0: so <laughs> he says it.
1: the causes of obesity from the observations noted above the accuracy of which anyone can testify it is easy to discover the principal causes of obesity the first is the natural constitution of the individual. Nearly all men are born with certain predispositions to which their physiognomy bears the stamp. Out of a hundred persons who die of consumption, 90 have brown hair, long faces, and pointed noses. Out of a hundred of obese persons- Jews. Jews, exactly, right? Are they all die of consumption? That's weird. This is 1825. Eat something. Uh, out of a hundred obese persons, on the other hand, 90 have short faces, round eyes, and snub noses. Do we agree? I don't think this is true. It is certain, therefore, that there are persons virtually doomed, as it were, to corpulence. Persons whose digestive activities, all things being equal, create more fat than those of their fellows. He's basically saying that Amy Schumer was, like, bound to be fat uh, from the round, short faces, round eyes, and snub noses.
4: Well, for, you know, the thing is, is that uh, there's this crazy, crazy, myths, misinformed myth about fat people that they eat too much. It really isn't the case. I mean, you know, you can put on some... I, you know, I took off 65 pounds... at ...in one time. Wow. And I put it back on, I mean, some of it. <laughs> um, and, you know, I did it by eating less and eating right and exercising. But there is this really nasty, nasty prejudicial myth about fat people that they eat too much and therefore they're selfish and therefore they're self-indulgent. Right. And they may eat more because they've been eating a lot for their entire lives. Their stomachs are bigger and they have more... You mass, know, to, mass feed. to feed and yeah. to maintain that energy but it's not why they're fat
3: wouldn't you say there's a difference though between fat people and obese people because to me there's a total difference between a fat person and someone that's obese meaning a fat someone who is a little bit overweight doesn't have to buy two seats on a plane compared to someone who is yeah. 500 pounds sure because to me i see a difference because I do have, you know, overweight people in my family, but they're not obese. They're not on scooters. They can still mobilize themselves and walk around and know when right. just to stop eating, you know. But I also feel like some some part of it is genetic.
4: Of course it is. You
3: know, as for obesity, this is... I'm it's
1: just, when... But that's the thing. So we have to say, it's, I, I agree with his theory on obesity, that it's when your, your body no longer takes its normal shape. Your, your body is somehow... Your arms don't look like arms anymore, right? Because look like wings. because they look like thighs or whatever. You know, like your body becomes misshapen because of your size. I mean, I don't. Other th- that's like the only time where I'm like, you know, wow. <laughs> How does it get? It just means that you're not. I guess. Well, there's exercising an, there's enough,
4: a, well, or? not exercising properly. So here's the thing: muscle weighs more than fat. Right. And when you have a higher muscle percentage in your body than you did before. Your metabolism goes up, and so what you eat is burned and the fat is burned. And so uh, one of the best ways to lose weight is to put on muscle because then your metabolism is up and the fat is burned quicker. Um, Ah. Fat also tends to – I've read some studies where fat attracts fat. So if you're already fat, there's fat cells going, oh, let's go over there. (laughs) Let's go hang out at that person's thigh for a while. There's other fat – cells Hanging out there. Let's go over there. You want to go over there? Yeah, let's go over there. I want to be around his ass, so maybe we'll <laughs> meet up later. Um, so that's part of it. The fat attracts other fat, but if you get your metabolism up by putting more muscle in your body, then you naturally burn it.
1: Big life lessons. What yeah, do I, I?
4: What do I know? I don't. Know. I'm see, overweight. Look at me. I mean, I really am. I'm not. See, what I but you know,
1: but you're not. But you're not obese. You're, yeah, you what look what like a, You look like a. You look like an normal person. You don't look like a. I wouldn't be like... I would never be like, oh, that's Stephen Allen and He's a fatty. He's a I don't, fatty. I don't yeah. feel. I don't feel... You
3: don't look like the Michelin Man. That's what's true. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's when... I, I
1: mean... And, and Latoya and I have talked about this before. I'm not a racist, I, but I am a sizist. I'm a racist. And when people get... <laughs> when people get to a certain size, I, and I haven't... There's a... There's a, there's a I wrote my first novel, there's a whole chapter about it, and this the character just doesn't know. And it's because I don't know how to deal with it. I don't know how... I don't know how it gets to that point. But I think that this gets back to helping comedians or something and that there's a depression thing. There's a cycle that Mm -hmm. once you start, it's like you can't stop. And once you're of a certain size and you feel depressed about size, then you can't stop. You don't want to leave the house. Well, being depressed as a
4: comedian, if you're being... (laughs) Being depressed as a comedian will give you great comedy. So you uh, become yeah. you become sort of a self-fulfilling prof- prophecy where you kind of like I can't. W-. I was writing about this this morning is that I grew up as a uh, in, in 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 continuous uh, crisis situations in my family. Continuous huh. crisis. And so uh, as an adult, when there's a crisis in my life, I will freak out for a bit. But then uh, the best part of me will come out. Yeah. The best part of me. I'm very, very calm in a crisis. You huh. know, I mean, I can't believe the things that I've actually been through in the last few years and didn't, um, you know, totally freak out. When you, when you're, when you're sitting at home and thinking about what might happen, or if that happens, that, you know, you could freak out. But yeah. if you really look at what you've been through, and if you remember the feeling of what you went through, it's like, well, that's that wasn't so bad.
3: It's a life lesson. Still alive. You're still alive. Still yeah. kicking. Kind of pat yourself on the back.
4: Yeah. Uh, if I could do that, I wouldn't well, need the Vaseline.
3: Let's <laughs> Well, let's all
1: uh pat ourselves on the back right now and Yay. shake Padding happiness, uh, all that kind of stuff for Stephen Allen Green and hey. the Laughter Foundation. Yeah. Look it up. Yeah. We'll actually—I'm making a new breaker, and, and I'll throw your old commercial back on. The oh, breaker. your
4: love, and thank you for having me here. Let me yeah. just—let me just say, and Toya, you're terrific. Um, thank you. You, know, you are. You are. You're funny. I want to see you perform. Um, I do. Uh, thank you for having me on uh, yeah. this great show. You're, you're a terrific uh, conversationalist, interviewer, person.
1: Thanks. Thank you. Everybody, uh, like him on Facebook. Look up the Laughter Foundation. Buy a brick. And uh, go see an upcoming show, and hopefully we can uh, hear soon about. Uh, I mean, it would be great if the Laughter Foundation could start that. Uh,
4: comedy museum. We're going to do comedy museum it. here. Maybe. Well, San let's do. That'd let's do. I'll tell you what. Uh, we can talk about it, but we can do an uh, exhibition for no money right here Absolutely. in this space. Absolutely. And by the way, yeah. I'm going to be tonight. I'm. I'm going to. I may get on. I'm uh, at the Baza- Danny Deutchy's Bazaar Cafe. Oh, good. 7 p.m. in the in on California Street in Richmond. Um, he invited me to come down, and if there's room, we'll put me on. But even if I'm not on, it's always a great show.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much Thank for being you. here.
4: Thank you. Thank uh, you.
1: All right, this has been the AltaCast, and we're going to S- sign off. I've been S- Pam Benjamin and Latoya, the Sheriff of Truth. Thanks so much for being here. Stay tuned for our next show, Some Call Me Tim, which is uh, the first hour. We are interviewing Jeremy Adkins, who's going to talk about his connection or disconnection with God and or God's, the divine jujitsu. Uh, head tattoos and all things spiritual here uh, s- our two will be filled by pervert fervor Moogie Timmy Timmy using his moogs the ones and twos the beepity boops good times here on Mutiny Radio stay tuned we'll see you guys next week on Mutiny Radio <laughs>
0: Mutiny Radio. fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit faced MacRat. <laughs> Good evening, there, my friends. Here at Mutiny Radio. FM. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well don't even worry, don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak moves. So all you gotta do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollected.org slash comedy clubhouse or
1: The dictionary definition of the adjective eclectic is selecting or choosing from various sources. When Bay Area musician JD Buell brings you Morning Train Wednesday 10am to noon on Mutiny Radio that is exactly what he does. Select music from various sources to give you a unique listening experience. In both listener and host find fulfillment. The Morning Train with JD Buell, Wednesday, 10 to noon on MutinyRadio.fm. Freeform radio for free minds.
5: 21st street in the deep mission at 21st in florida contact pam at pam at hotmail.com for more options and booking dates incredible socialist prices so you can be creative in a free speech space without breaking the bank that's mutiny radio rentals every thursday saturday and sunday from 8 to 10 book your event now to hurt me, but boy how it burns me whenever she me you know, i feel so lucky, oh.